0: do your lawn care. Visit truegreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed.
1: If you're shopping while working, eating or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back, and you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Fenty Beauty and Expedia and even stack sales I remember like the first times in the sit room, like looking around and being like, wait a minute, how did I get in here? Are they going to kick me out? He looked at me and he said, if you're good, you'll learn. And I understand that you're good. So I have faith that you'll learn. The Russians are really good at identifying the vulnerabilities and the weak points in any different platform, in any different place, and to use that and exploit that.
0: Tell us about election night. Why do you think she lost?
1: It's a really complex question. This is Intelligence Matters with Michael Morrell, a joint production of the CipherBrief.com and CBS News. I'm CipherBrief CEO and publisher Suzanne Kelly. In this podcast, the former acting director of the CIA speaks with top leaders asking the right questions and making connections that provide deeper insight into complex security events. Because intelligence matters.
0: Laura Rosenberger is currently a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund and is its director of the Alliance for Securing Democracy, a project that she recently founded that is aimed at countering Russian efforts to undermine democracy here in the U.S. and in Europe. And Laura was also the top foreign policy advisor to Secretary Clinton during the campaign she was Chief of Staff to the Deputy Secretary of State, Senior Advisor to the Deputy National Security Advisor, and Special Assistant to the Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs. I had the real pleasure to sit down with her to talk about Russia's meddling in our democracy, what they did, what they are still doing today, and what we as a country need to do about it. This is Intelligence Matters, and I'm Michael Morrell. Laura, welcome. It's great to have you here.
1: Thanks, Michael. It's really great to be here.
0: Before we get to Russia, I want to take you back a bit. Because our listeners, particularly the college students and young professionals who tune in, who listen, are very interested in career tracks and in their career choices that people have made. So with that in mind, you grew up in Pittsburgh, I understand. In fact, I saw someone that you're a Steelers fan.
1: Pretty rabid and Steelers unf- fan.
0: Fortunately, I need to tell you that I'm a Ravens fan because oh. I grew up. I grew up in Northeast Ohio. So I grew up as a Browns fan. And of course, they moved to Baltimore. They did. And there was no team.
1: That's right. For a
0: while after they left. So I became a Ravens fan. So I'm really sorry that you're That's okay. I'm a
1: I mean, you know, so far we're actually feeling pretty good about our record <laughs> against the Ravens this season. I know, so, I know. Yeah.
0: So you grew up in Pittsburgh. In fact, you grew up Jewish in mm-hmm. Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. So, what was it like in the Rosenberger household? What did you learn there? What did you learn from your parents that you have brought right through?
1: So I, you know, growing up in Pittsburgh was a really interesting experience for a number of different reasons. One, you know, it's a city that I love so much. And as much as I hate to admit it, you know, there are some commonalities with Cleveland in terms of that, just like that grit and hard work and loyal people who believe deeply in their communities and care a whole lot about their neighbors. I was really brought up with the spirit of family, you know, in the Jewish tradition that I was brought up in a lot of focus on social justice. You know, in Judaism of the teaching of the fact that as as Jews, we sort of have an obligation, having been freed from oppression in the past, to help root out oppression wherever we see it. So that's something that has informed a lot of my work throughout my life. I grew up in what my mom called a mixed marriage, both because my father was not Jewish, my, my mother is. But also because my father growing up was a Republican, my mother was a Democrat. And so my mom used to talk about that as being the particular part of the mixed marriage. But the point there being, too, I grew up with a diversity of political opinions in my home as well. So
0: why did you end up a Democrat?
1: You know, from very early on in life was just really focused on the roots of inequality in our society and the consequences of inequality in our society. And really that For me, it was an orienting principle around which a lot of the work I did early in my sort of high school, college years was quite focused on figuring out how do we provide a better basis for equality in our society in order to reduce the conflict, the instability that results from inequality. And I'm talking inequality, whether that's racial, gender, economic, you know, across the full spectrum of of issues. And so, you know, I think that sort of naturally drew me to the left and then eventually to be a Democrat.
0: You go off to Penn State, mm-hmm. and here we have another problem because I'm, <laughs> because I'm an Ohio State fan, you see. Uh, and now this is the, the rivalry, right, between Penn State is. and Ohio State. So you go off there and you study sociology, psychology, and women's studies. Why did you choose those?
1: So it, it really builds off of what we were just talking about in terms of this real focus I had on, on inequality in our society and trying to understand it. And so I think those were the studies, those were the disciplines that I was really attracted to. I mean... I really enjoyed the social science framework of, you know, critical thinking and trying to problem solve in that aspect, but was really interested in both the role of the individual and the role of groups. Um, and so that's why the combination of both sociology and psychology and then was just very active as a feminist on campus at Penn State, which was an interesting experience in and of itself. But that's sort of where the women's, where the women's studies came in to play there as well. So a lot of sort of commonalities for me across those. So what lessons. was it like to be a
0: feminist on the state college campus?
1: Well, the town itself is certainly a little bit more liberal than most of the rest of central Pennsylvania, which is a very relative statement. Penn State I itself... I went fishing there,
0: by the way, in, in, the middle, <laughs> in the middle of the campaign last year. Mm-hmm. I went fishing there, and it was in early October, and there were Trump signs everywhere.
1: And probably a lot of Confederate flags. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So State College is its own interesting, it is a college town, but for a university, Penn State's a pretty um, conservative university. But we had, a when I was there, a core of sort of what we would now call progressive activists. We didn't use the term progressive in quite the same way at that point in time. I was really involved on a lot of sort of campus activism, and in particular around the issues of campus sexual assault. That was an issue that was very top of mind at Penn State at that point in time. A lot of the Frankly, a lot of the decisions that were being made about how to deal with women who were being assaulted on campus, I think, manifested in the same way that some very bad decisions were made about how to handle um, the Sandusky handle Mm -hmm. and trying to sweep under the rug um, some of the really horrible stuff that was happening. So I was involved in in sort of the movement on campus to get the administration to take a bit more seriously campus sexual assault.
0: But then 9-11 happens. Yes. You're at school and 9-11 happens. Yes that seems to change your focus.
1: Changed or clarified is probably the, the word I would use. I, I was really drawn at that point in my career to public policy. And I knew going into my senior year that I wanted to do something in the public policy space, but was really torn between domestic and foreign policy. I had spent the summer actually doing an internship with a women's organization, focusing on a combination of both domestic policy issues on focus on women, as well as on international women's rights. Actually, ironically, um, Afghan women and girls. Wow. This is pre 9-11. And so, you know, I was kind of wrestling with that decision. September of your senior year of college, you kind of need to decide, okay, what's coming next? And in the policy space, at least early on, there is really this bifurcation, right or wrong, between domestic and foreign policy. And so was grappling with that decision. And then 9-11 happened. And I woke up that next morning and I said, well, now I know what I need to do with my life. I need to do everything I possibly can to see that that kind of event never happens again.
0: So then you go to American University for graduate school. That's right. Where you focus on foreign affairs, foreign policy. Correct. And you spent some time in Kosovo.
1: I did, Tell me about that. So it was uh, the summer between my first and second year of graduate school. I was doing a lot of work focused on sort of post-conflict reconstruction issues, particularly the work I was doing there was on security sector reform. So I was helping to build the civilian police force there. And by helping to build, I mean, I was like junior person in the operation there, but was was part of the effort to, to help build a civilian police force. But what that means in a place that's never had their own civilian police force uh, meant not only the personnel and the training in terms of what it means to be a, a cop, but it meant, you know, rule of law. It meant trying to ensure that there was ethnic balance in the police force where you still had a lot of enormous ethnic tensions after the conflict there. It meant ensuring that um, you had women in the police force. It meant And ensuring that there was an understanding of human rights and the rule of law and all of that. And so that was some of the work I was doing in the day-to-day. And then I also did my master's thesis work while I was there, which um, I went in thinking I was going to work on women's role in post-conflict societies. And ended up realizing that there had been a lot of really good work done on that. But in fact, what hadn't really been wrestled with was the fact that four years post-conflict, the ethnic tensions were actually sort of increasing versus decreasing. And sort of why was that?
0: And how do you think that shaped you, that that time in Kosovo, right, as you look back on it?
1: So in the moment, the way it shaped me was um, I had made the decision to go right from from undergraduate to, to graduate school. And that's the one solid piece of advice I give to anybody. And so for anyone who's listening, take some time between undergrad and grad school, because what I realized was, among other things, when I was in Kosovo, I thought, oh, my gosh, all this stuff I'm learning in the classroom is completely irrelevant to actually what we're trying to accomplish on the ground here. And how do I even begin to apply these things, these very theoretical concepts in a classroom to the work that's being done here on the ground?
0: One of the questions I get all the time on college campuses is, in the situation room, which theory of international relations
1: do you apply? <laughs> oh, if only... There's a long pause, If right? only, yeah. I mean, look, they're really important is putting structure around our intellectual thinking, but you have to be able to interrogate them with practical real world experiences. And so what I realized in Kosovo was, wait, how do I, how does any of this matter? But what I then realized was going back from my second year of graduate school, I thought, okay, I could wrestle with those things theories and those frameworks in a completely different way, because I could challenge them with real world world experience, and I could apply them to it. And so having even that little bit of experience in the field was really, really helpful. You know, I think in the longer term, my time in Kosovo gave me just a real faith in humanity. And I know that that may sound sort of like a paradox, given that it was a, a time when the when it was a really, really Destroyed place. There was still not power around the clock. We had rolling blackouts every single day. Water was not always running, and this was in the you know capital city of Pristina. But the resiliency of the people who had been through this horrible, horrible time—not just the immediate conflict and the and the post-conflict, but you know things had not been hunky-dory in Kosovo for quite a while before that and and these people who just had this determination to be able to move the right direction and who believed in values and who frankly were this was this was the time of early Iraq war days and so it was a time when America was not seen very favorably in in a lot of Europe in particular but but around the world and these you know especially the the Kosovo Albanians i mean just could not thank America enough for what we had done to stop the ethnic cleansing there. and
0: they, I think they call themselves the 51st date or something. Oh, yes, I
1: remember yes. being there for the 4th of July. <laughs> and I mean, they had like huge concerts. And it's normally it's the U.S. Embassy that just has these events. But they had like all of these events. And I still remember seared in my brain is this image of an American flag on a stage that where they had put into the area where you have the stars in the upper left corner, um, the Albanian flag, actually to kind of like substitute and is the the 51st state idea. So absolutely.
0: So then you become a presidential management fellow assigned to the State Department. Mm -hmm. Can you tell folks what a presidential management fellow is and how do you become one? And would you recommend that? people pursue that as a way to get into government?
1: Yeah. For anybody who's interested in serving in sort of the civil service elements of, of government, I think it's one of the best programs that's out there. Um, it's available for anybody who's finishing a graduate program, and that can be in any graduate discipline. And it doesn't have to be a master's. It can be I mean, a master's, a PhD, a JD, an MD, any kind of, of graduate degree. And what it basically does, it was designed at a time when the government was having a really hard time attracting high quality. The higher educated you know civil servants into the workforce and really designed as a leadership fast track as a development program to be able to bring in high caliber people more easily and promote them quickly and so basically there's a series of, of things you go through to apply for and qualify for the fellowship. And then you are open to a series of positions within government agencies that are available to fellows. And you spend a couple years doing different rotations, having different experiences within the government, and then have the opportunity to to stay on in a permanent capacity. And it's a tremendous program because not only do you get leadership training in the process, um, not only do you get to kind of cut through some of the government red tape that's normally some of the biggest barrier to entry for getting in the door in the government, but you also get to to you know, you're emoted on a quicker track, and the goal is really to facilitate the building of the you know next generation of government leaders. And the list of former presidential management fellows is a really, really impressive one in terms of where people have reached in their in their careers.
0: So you rise rapidly at State Department. You end up as special assistant to Bill Burns, yes. um, and then you go to the White House where you're a director for Korea. And then you become the special assistant to the deputy national security advisor and then back to State Department to be the chief of staff to the deputy secretary of state. So that's a pretty quick rise if you think about it. If somebody's ambition were to look at you and say, gosh, I'd like to do that, what would you tell them to focus on? What would you tell them to think about in terms of, of being successful at any job?
1: So I think there's a couple of, of general pieces of advice I give on, on sort of the success question. The first is find something that you care about. Because if you are working on an issue or something a subject matter about. that you're passionate about, you are going to want to do well. You're not gonna have to force yourself to do well. You're gonna want to do well. Now look, I've also fully recognized that like that's it's a luxury and a privilege to be able to work on something you're passionate about. A lot of people never get to do that. And, and so it but for people who have privilege to be able to choose and to work on something and to pursue something that they're passionate about. I think that that's step number one. Step number two is obvious. It's just, you know, work very hard, put your head down. I still remember an early interview I had when I was actually still a presidential management fellow and it was my first position working on Korea. And I had never worked on Korea before. And I was interviewing for this rotation. And I said actually to the, the person interviewing me, just to be clear, I have no previous experience on Korea or even Asia. The position was originally focused on human rights and refugee issues, which I had had a good bit of experience on. But I felt this need, which in retrospect, I'm like, what was I thinking? But to say I don't have any experience in this. And I remember he looked at me and he said, if you're good, you'll learn. And I understand that you're good, so I have faith that you'll learn. And that willingness to continue to learn new things, to expand your horizons, to know that you can apply the skills you've learned from one area to another. And I think that that's one of the things that's really important, is especially for people who are still in school, to realize is it's the transferable skills that are most important. Like the deep subject matter, knowledge can come later. But for the most part, having skills and the critical thinking frameworks and the ability to evaluate and assess information to ask the right questions, especially in the foreign policy and national security domain, is really core. Were you hard on yourself? yeah yes definitely and i i think so was I, I still so was I am I, I yeah was, i was
0: harder on myself yeah. than any boss could ever be yeah
1: well right? and i think all of us also st- probably still have maybe you've gotten over this point i don't know is this idea of imposter syndrome too where it's like wait they're gonna find out that i'm not as good as they think i am and i so it's like you have so to it makes like you even work harder it makes, it makes you work harder but you you know i mean those i remember like the first times in the sit room like looking around and being like wait a minute How did I get in here? And are they going to kick me out when they realize that, like, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about? But that willingness to learn and expand is really important. The last thing I would say in terms of the career trajectory piece is I was extraordinarily fortunate to have throughout my career really, really tremendous champions, mentors and champions. And you mentioned Bill Burns, and he is a giant in this field, but he's also a tremendous mentor, was a tremendous champion for me. Tony Blinken, who I had the joy of working for, same. And I could go down both a very... Both the NSC
0: and its state.
1: Both the NSC and its state. And I could go down a very, very long list of people, and I won't bore people here, But, you know, it's not just the job, it's the person you're working for. And that became increasingly clear to me across my career, too, is you can work on what sounds on paper like a really sexy thing. But if you're working for somebody who's either not going to give you the opportunity to do something meaningful and substantive, isn't going to empower or trust you, isn't going to teach you along the way, and isn't going to help you, you know, it may not really be worth it. And and who you work for matters as much, if not more, sometimes than actually what you're doing.
0: Did you find particular challenges being a woman trying to make your way in foreign policy, national security world? And the reason I asked this question, I asked this question for a lot of reasons, but my daughter said to me the other day, dad, I love your podcast, but do you know that only 17% of your guests have been women? <laughs> <laughs> So I took a little lesson well, from that.
1: Hopefully, we're <laughs> we're uh, shifting that percentage a little bit. You know, the interesting thing is, uh, and I actually just wrote a piece, I had the opportunity to reflect on this and write a piece on this, is that when I was in government, for the most part, it's not something I was very conscious of most of the time. I think it's you know you just kind of put your head down, you work hard. In government, you have the luxury of serving in a hierarchical structure where people are sort of seen for the job that they occupy largely. Now, that's not always the case, but there's a deference given to the position sometimes even over the person. And that, I think, actually does sort of help women sometimes in that sense. There were certainly moments, and I don't want to make it seem like there weren't. I mean, one of my favorite stories to tell is I, one, of, one of the most incredible experiences I had during my time at the NSC was getting to go with President Obama to Sunnylands for his first meeting with Xi Jinping, his first meeting after she had become president. We did a very small sort of retreat-type meeting out in California for two days and I got to go and, and be part of all of the prep and the, the meetings there. And it was an incredible experience. But we were trying to set the stage for this somewhat more informal meeting. And so there were all these conversations about well, what would the dress be? And so our protocol team basically decided it would be shirt, no tie shirt with jacket, no tie. And I remember going, okay, so how do I, what does that mean for a woman? And it was such a gendered way of describing dress. And of course, nobody even thought about it. And of course, I was the only woman on either side, right? And so, you know, I remember wrestling with this and I'm, I am the only woman, I'm the most junior person. And so I'm wanting to like represent myself well. So I remember compromising on like a dress with a jacket or something like that. Of course, it was like 95 degrees as well. But that, you know, those, it's those small things that makes you go, okay, we still speak a language that is gendered. You know, it's also, you know, like when you're a woman and you go somewhere like Baghdad and, you know, you have to be reminded you can't wear heels because if you've got to evacuate a vehicle or somewhere else really quickly, you can't be worrying about your heels right there. The biggest way I noticed the sort of woman dimension when I was in government was actually in interacting with foreign government officials who were from countries where women still weren't as prevalent in their, you know, government ministries. And so I'd get these comments frequently, which were well intended, but I'd I'd get people saying, oh, you're a woman. And you're in this position and you're so young. And so you must be so smart, you know, because as as if you would have to be exceptionally smart to somehow overcome being a woman to occupy these roles. And, you know, but what was then interesting was at the end of the day, I still felt they They, dealt with me. They dealt with you. They dealt with me because they respected the position, right? I mean, it's the same thing we see over and over again. And that's why I think it's so important that we make sure women are in these roles, because that's the only way that it's going to become... Not Normal. an issue. Normal, right. Yeah.
0: Which is which is where we want to get to. Exactly. So the State Department, I know you are passionate about it and what it does and how important it is and the situation there, the budget cuts, the lack of staffing, the low morale must be very concerning to you.
1: It's really concerning to me. You know, I think our State Department does such important work that is so largely invisible to most Americans. But it is the work that sort of ensures that the gears of everything else keep churning. It's the work that ensures that we don't need to get our military engaged. It's the work that ensures... A
0: point that Secretary Mattis has made over and over and over again.
1: Exactly. Exactly. The other thing for me is a lot of it's not sort of glamorous work. People there don't necessarily do it um, for recognition. They don't necessarily do the work because it's the sexiest thing ever. Some of it's very sort of mundane and routine of just keeping the business of foreign relations going. And that is, it's a garden that needs to be tended constantly. And with neglect becomes sort of overgrown very, very quickly.
0: Do you think this is a a lack of understanding, a lack of awareness about how important it is? Or do you think it's something else?
1: I worry that it's something else. I worry that there is a sense that diplomacy isn't the biggest priority when it comes to how we execute foreign policy and national security. I worry that there isn't sort of an appreciation of the role that diplomacy plays in that. I worry that there is a sense that the State Department is just sort of bloated and overgrown and from another time, which, you know, there might be like kernels of truth there. There's no question that reforms and upgrades are- Any
0: organization could do better.
1: Absolutely. But- you know There are ways to go about that that actually helps build morale and build the capacity of those organizations. And what I worry is that we're actually seeing an atrophy of an organization at a time when having a robust global leadership presence is more important than ever, given the challenges that we face across the world stage. There's really no challenge in the national security domain that I can think about where diplomacy would play no part of it. Now, there are going to be some issues where diplomacy may not be the first piece of it. But even in an instance where we need to use military force for whatever reason that may be, or where we are employing intelligence tools for for different purposes... There's always a diplomatic component that has to come whether that's to help rebuild after a war whether that's to build the institutions of a country to make sure that it's more democratic and secure whether that's to ensure that you know the kind of development aid that's been so important to the execution of our foreign policy mission continues
0: It seems to me there's a real imbalance right now where the military piece of what we're doing is out in front is actually doing very well we accelerated the fight in Iraq and Syria against ISIS take some more risk. But the political element is almost completely missing. And to your point about the importance of it, when the caliphate goes away, where's the political solution for the Sunnis in Syria and in Iraq that will make sure that ISIS doesn't come back someday, right? It's just completely missing.
1: Yeah. In the counter-ISIS strategy that was developed in the Obama administration towards the end, I think you were still around for some of that, and then you had left by most of that. But There was a very multi-pronged strategy, which is actually largely what the Trump administration has continued with a few tweaks and adjustments. But most of that strategy has been what has been continuing to be pursued. But that strategy included a whole host of different tools. It was a real full of government strategy, whole of government strategy to ensure that not only was ISIS sort of put on its back foot, pushed back, defeated, but that you built the political institutions around it afterwards to ensure that a vacuum wasn't regenerated. And what I worry about is with a, you know, basically an atrophy of the State Department or, or a decimation of the State Department, we're not going to be able to do that really, really critical work. And the situation is only getting more complicated with the Kurdish referendum and in Syria, I can't actually tell that we have a policy at all aside from ceding it to Russia. So, you know, I think that that's also an area where, you know, say what you want about the Obama administration's failures on Syria. Secretary Kerry was very dedicated, especially in the last year, to trying to do something diplomatically on Syria. Now, again, you can say what you want about that particular effort. But the bottom line is there was an attempt to use diplomacy to be involved, to be engaged. And he
0: had a strategy. And
1: he had a strategy.
0: And he he was trying to make it work.
1: Right, right.
0: So in 2015, you leave government. Yes. To go be the top foreign policy advisor to Secretary Clinton for her campaign. Yes. Why did you do that? Why did you leave government?
1: You know, it was actually a really hard decision for me because my whole career had been as a civil servant. I had started in the Bush administration. Even though I have my own personal politics, I'd never really seen my professional work in a political light. And so the decision to go to the campaign was one that I wrestled with because I knew that it would be sort of taking on a much more political role than what I had ever done before. But I talked with a lot of trusted people. And basically what it came down to was a few things. One was the point earlier about who you work for matters as much sometimes as what you're doing. And so... I had had the privilege of working with Secretary Clinton at the State Department when she was secretary. I had also worked very closely both at the State Department and the White House with Jake Sullivan, who was the policy director on the campaign, who was the one who approached me about joining. I have tremendous respect for Jake and knew that He's somebody who would take seriously the policy issues. I knew that Secretary Clinton would take seriously the policy issues. I knew that she wasn't the kind of politician that I was going to have to have a map that I was teaching capitals to and names of foreign leaders. I mean, we wrestled with serious, serious policy issues because she wanted – she thought of it as if she was preparing to be president, and that was what it was about. And I knew that that would be a challenging effort. I also knew that it would allow me to grow in certain ways. And one of the things actually that Tony Blinken, who had worked on campaigns before, you know, said to me was that the experience of working on a campaign also really forces you to think about the communications element of our foreign policy in a different way. Rather than just talking to ourselves in our sort of wonk circles, you have to think about how to explain these complex problems to the American people. And I actually think you know, now having had that experience and sort of especially thinking about where we are right now more broadly, I think it's something we don't think about enough, Um, how we talk about foreign policy outside of just foreign policy circles and actually about why what we do matters so much.
0: Tell us about election night.
1: So I was actually in Pittsburgh.
0: You weren't in New York.
1: I was not in New York. Many of us who sort of weren't sort of the, the core team involved in the strategy of, you know, the final days of the election had gone to various battleground states. You know, the reality is that when it came to new policy making out foreign policy, we weren't doing very much at that point in time. And most of what came up, I could do remotely. And so I went back to Pittsburgh for the last stretch of the campaign. And Pennsylvania is a, an election day only state. So you can't early vote in Pennsylvania. You can only vote on election day. So it's really, really critical to get everybody out and the get out the vote effort is is particularly important. And so I really wrestled with the decision about whether to go back to New York, but I knew that that would mean leaving really quite early on Election Day. And I also knew that I would never – I was a very superstitious person and sort of never counted my chickens, even as shocked as I was at the outcome – you know, I, I knew that I would never be able to forgive myself if I left early and something went awry. And so I stayed until polls closed, was knocking doors into the dark of night, and then actually went to, you know, meet up with the regional headquarters team. And there were a couple of other colleagues from the campaign from Brooklyn headquarters who had come out to Pittsburgh as well. And we were together there, joined by my parents as well. And it was a very long night. Why do you think she lost? It's a really complex question. I think that, number one, there is no question that the divisions in this country are, are, I think, deeper than what we realized. I think that there are a lot of people who just were never going to be willing to vote for her because she's Hillary Clinton. And we can unpack that in a lot of different ways. And that has many different components to it. Some of it goes back to the fact that she wasn't going to bake cookies. But I think that there were a lot of people who just were never going never gonna to vote for her. I think that the aspects of race that came out in this campaign actually have not gotten enough attention in the role that that played. I think we're starting to see a little more conversation around that in in light of some of the more recent events, Charlottesville and whatnot. But I, I think even in a state like Pennsylvania, where Confederate flags fly in a Union state very widely, There's a lot of undercurrent there. So a lot of people who, for one reason or another, feel that they are being displaced from the role they've always expected to play or have in a society, felt angry.
0: Take it out on the establishment.
1: It was a change election, and so, like, let's just go with the change. But
0: He had a really powerful argument at the end of the day, didn't he, when he said, you've been, he was ignoring the fact that she wasn't in charge, you know, you've been in Washington for the last 30 years, and look at the mess we're in.
1: Right. Right? I mean, that's, that's. It's an outsider, it, it, insurgent it's true, kind
0: of... But it's a, it was a compelling argument for him to make.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and he could also argue, I mean, you know, look, his closing ad that like last, ran in the last week, that two-minute ad, was sort of lambasted for how highly racially charged and anti-Semitic it was. But it had resonance.
0: So I saw a poll the other day where it listed a whole bunch of public figures, you know, it was approval ratings for those figures, and the president was down near the bottom, but Secretary Clinton was actually at the bottom. And you know, you know her really well and I know her a little bit. She is smart, she's caring, she's warm, she's funny. She's deeply concerned about her country and how can she can help make it better? Why do you think there's this misperception of who she is as a person?
1: 30 years of a campaign by certain elements of certain elements of the Republican Party and parts related to the Republican Party to paint her as the villain. And we see it still today. I mean, the Republican Party has not found another villain to replace Hillary Clinton yet. And so we constantly, whether it's President Trump or other Republican figures want to kind of create a dynamic with an enemy, (laughs) Hillary Clinton is the one that they point to. And so, you know, whether it's around the um, really awful, awful stories that have come out about Harvey Weinstein, which should absolutely be condemned by everyone under the sun.
0: And should make us take a deeper look at how we deal with that issue.
1: A thousand percent. But some have tried to make that story about Hillary Clinton. (laughs) right? There's been this focus on how many days did it take her to speak out? Was she forceful enough? And what is she doing with her donations? And look, the same questions could apply to any number of other political figures out there and do apply. But there's been a unique focus on her. And we see this over and over and over again. Still, you know, you turn on Fox News sometimes and the stories are all about Hillary Clinton this and Hillary Clinton that. And so why do people have misperceptions of her? Because for 30 years, there has been a campaign to try to really take her down. You know, the, the other element, which I know we can get to in the campaign conversation, which it's, you know, I think I'm personally not at a point where I would say, was it decisive or not? But we, we know that Russia attempted to sway the election yeah, and so certainly go, has so, intervened. So let's go there. Right? Okay.
0: So the election happens. It doesn't go the way that, that you had hoped. And you think about what you want to do. And I know you have a lot of different offers coming your way, but you choose to do something very interesting. You choose to go to the German Marshall Fund and to start a program to really understand what the Russians are doing and call it out, make sure Americans know what the Russians are doing. Why did you end up there?
1: Yeah, there was a journey involved, you know, from that election night to try to figure out what next. I had these moments where I thought I'm going to abandon foreign policy and I'm going to go back to, you know, focusing on domestic issues because we have so many problems in our country and our democracy is under threat internally. And I need to really do something about that. And then I realized, OK, wait, I've spent like, you know, a very long time now building up this expertise and passion and focus on foreign policy issues. And and the reality is I'm not a domestic policy expert. And so sure, I could learn to do that. But is that really where I'm going to have the most impact? Number one, number two, I had this realization that like what our adversaries want and frankly, what I think some internally would like is that we just turn our focus inward and that we do pull back from the world and that those of us who care about America's global role sort of get so bogged down with the infighting here that we forget about looking outward. And so I said, I'm not willing to do that. But I did really, you know, wrestle with this question of what can I do that's meaningful and impactful, having never worked on the outside before, number one. Number two, really feeling this very strong feeling about our democracy being under threat and then realizing that, wait a minute, it's under threat from other forces, too, And Michael, you at one point described Russia's interference in our election as the political equivalent of 9-11. And for me, how I felt the experience of Russia's interference is how I felt after 9-11. It was that kind of moment of after kind of that journey for me of thinking through the cobwebs of what now, realizing I need to do everything I can to see that this when stops. Did
0: you, when did you first see it in the campaign?
1: You know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, there, was a,
0: there was the DNC yeah. stuff, right? Yeah. And people know all about that, right? Stealing, you know, using cyber espionage, DNC, John Podesta's emails, give it to WikiLeaks, you know, let them run with, the, with anything that's embarrassing. But the social media piece, turning social media into a weapon, which is what Vladimir Putin did. When did you first know that that was happening?
1: We've tried to reconstruct it retrospectively because it's hard, right? You you're, you think now we all are so like awoke to it. And when did that sort of awareness really come? I think the reality is we didn't realize the totality of it until afterwards.
0: Um, and, and I don't think the intelligence community did either. Because I think that I think that's it's right. Very, very interesting when the DNI, Jim Clapper and the Homeland Security Secretary, Jay Johnson, put out their public statement about the Russians interfering in the election in late October. They only talked about the DNC, John Podesta hacks, and the attempts to get inside the voting States, systems. Right. It didn't talk about social media at all. That's right. So I don't think they saw it either.
1: I, I don't think they did. And, you know, we saw glimpses. So there were there were a few moments where we knew something weird had happened or was happening. And so there was a moment when Trump actually read on stage, I believe it was a Sputnik article. It was either RT or Sputnik. And he, he read it on stage at a rally, and it was really weird. Like, why is he, right? And it was it was something that was false, right? It was It was demonstrably false. And then it ended up being this big blow-up with a reporter who kind of called him out on it, and then he called them out, and then it kind of became this big back and forth. But that was the first moment of, like, he's actually reading Russian propaganda from the stage. Now, we knew that there was some other weird stuff happening. Like, we had been tracking for some time a lot of weird... Unusual in a campaign context, contacts between his campaign and Russian officials or affiliation. So that was something that was kind of strange. We were also tracking, you know, his own personal policy views on Russia, which were real outliers. I mean, from any political perspective, were true outliers across the board, and are our, our views that he's held for decades, actually. And so we had kind of this picture. We knew as well that he had stood on stage, you may recall, at one point and said, Russia, if you have the rest of Hillary's emails, please release them. Or if not, can you go find them? There was a couple other incidents. Um, So there was this one account or one effort where in the wake of the attempted coup in Turkey, there was actually a a Russian information operation that, that failed but that tried to manufacture the story that there was an attack on the Inserlik base. And, oh my gosh, if there's nukes there, they may be in danger, and this is going to be a new Benghazi. And you saw this blow up very quickly in social media. And the, the team that I'm working with very closely on social media analysis actually wrote this up at the time about this attempt to kind of generate a Benghazi-like incident And and it failed, but not before several Trump campaign officials actually cited this incident, supposed incident, which didn't happen at all in various interviews. And so, again, we knew like something was weird in the information space. Something's making it into the bloodstream over here. But nobody could kind of put the picture together.
0: So can you do just that? Can you put the picture together about what did they do in the social media space? Mm -hmm. What did the Russians do?
1: So I think we're still at this point learning the totality of it. And I think that that speaks to a broader challenge that we face, which is really not only like getting on top of what happened, but getting, you know, stopping what's what's still happening today and then getting ahead of it in the future. But our sense of what they have done or what they did was, number one, it started at least a year, if not two in some cases before the election to really cultivate a network of people in the United States who would be able to help spread these messages? Now, when I say cultivate and able to help spread, you know, most of them didn't necessarily realize they were doing this. I mean, this is how these networks, these information operations, are supposed operate. to work. They're
0: designed to work that way. Exactly.
1: Right? Exactly. And the social media space, you know, as, as you well know, so much of this is out of a playbook that was used during the Soviet Union. The yeah, reality is that
0: was newspapers and magazines right. and radio and TV. And this is just a different medium for them.
1: Right. But a medium where in some instances anonymity is much easier, you can do things at a much greater scale. Information moves much faster. I mean the idea of something going viral was not really around in Cold War days. And so what they were able to do is over time you know, establish relationships with others on social media to become trusted sources of information. They'd often cultivate ties based on some kind of Affiliation. So, one of the things that people think about when we talk about these Russian information operations is people have this impression that we're talking about information about Russia or propaganda about Russia. The vast majority of the time, that has nothing to do with it. A lot of what it is is social, cultural, religious, race, you know, other kinds of sometimes political issues, whatever it kind of takes to get the foot in the door, develop playing that relationship, playing on our divisions, trying to exploit our divisions but also recognizing that in some instances and in the groups they're really trying to get into, and by the way, those are both on the right and the left. It is not ideological and it is not one of just one side or the other. They've made attempts with both, but try to cultivate that over time. And then they will, you know, what they would do then over time is start to build up messaging in one area or another. and. That increasingly turned to be around the election, but also around other issues where they would try to exacerbate tensions, try to pit people against one another, create a much more divisive environment, which, frankly, going back to our earlier conversation about why did she lose, you know, an insurgent candidate is going to have more success when you have really hollowed out the middle, and when you have undermined faith in institutions, and that's so much of what their effort is, is aimed at. And so it manifested differently across different platforms on Facebook. It was about the groups that they would cultivate around particular issues. There were the ads, which were just really starting to learn about in any detail, some of which were about particular candidates some of which were about particular issues, often around race or religion, gender. On Twitter, it's often, it was often much more inflammatory kind of stuff, um, much more really trying to sort of distort the information environment. So often kind of gaming the system there. But you know, this is not unique to the United States, is one of the things I would point out. So You know, a lot of the methodologies that we're seeing now come out in the reporting are things that the Russians have been using across the European space over the past several years, if not the better part of a decade. And so Ukraine has been sort of ground zero for all this. But even, for instance, in Germany, which recently had elections and Angela Merkel's party was, you know, got the most votes in the Bundestag. But, you know, the AFD, this far-right party, is now the third largest in Germany's parliament. And they got some assist from their Russian friends, which sought to play on the same things of sowing and exploiting divisions around issues of immigration. They also sought to play on gender issues. Um, They sought to play on historical issues, so they really targeted the Russian-German population. And they also did things like trying to get on Facebook, which is much more commonly used in in Germany than Twitter – And I should be careful here with they, because sometimes the line blurs between what's what's actually the Kremlin, what's their proxies, and then what's tactics that like the AFD themselves have adopted from this playbook. But what we saw happening in in Germany is that Facebook users across the political spectrum were all getting recommended as a page that they should check out. You know, there's the recommended pages and all that on Facebook. AFD was up there as one of the top pages being recommended across Germany on Facebook, which, you know, somebody gamed something. And now Facebook, as I understand it, has made it impossible since then to do that with political parties. But the point is the Russians are really good at identifying the vulnerabilities and the weak points in any different platform, in any different place, and to use that and exploit that.
0: So you said something really important, I think, which is that it continues today.
1: Mm -hmm. It absolutely continues today. And I think it's really important, too, that we understand that this isn't just about elections. For Putin, this is about weakening the United States, weakening Europe. That's about weakening individual countries. That's about dividing us from each other, weakening NATO, weakening the EU. Putin is leading a declining state. Russia is a declining power. But Putin wants to maintain a grasp on power which requires doing a couple things. One, you know, in the relative sense, if he wants to kind of restore Russia's greatness, which in thinking parts of his mind he does, he can only do that by weakening others. It's relative for him. It's Russia gaining relative power by weakening others. So that's one. Two is it allows him to say to his own population, parts of which continue to agitate for greater political freedoms and democracy, hey, look what's happening in the United States and Europe. That democracy thing isn't really going so well. It's a lot of chaos and it's just kind of a mess and you don't want that. And I can give you stability here. And so Putin kind of kind of gets both there. He
0: wins both ways.
1: Yeah. But for him, it's not just about elections. I mean, I think that we have sort of started to see this through an election prism. And it's not to say it's not about elections at all. Of course, that's in any democracy, our elections are one of the most important institutions. But our media and what is being done with these information campaigns to try to undermine the sense that there is any truth anymore is extremely dangerous. So what should we do
0: about this? This is a huge, huge deal for all the reasons you just said. Yeah. What should we as a country do about this?
1: So I think we have to start with recognizing that we have a problem. And the reality is that as much as you and I, and I'm sure many of your listeners, understand the threat that this poses, if we look at both the political conversation happening across Washington As well as if we look at polling on these issues, we still have a pretty partisan divide on, in fact, whether Russia interfered at all, and if so, whether it matters or whether it poses a threat. Continuing to allow this to be defined as a partisan issue is actually playing directly into Putin's hands. It's part of their strategy is to make us see this in a partisan way. And you see that even, I mean, RT just went up with these ads around DC and New York where they're basically playing on the allegations of interference and trying to make a joke of it, but also trying to just be unbelievably dismissive of it. And the reality is that that's their game. And the more partisan we are in our response, the more divided we are in our response, the more we lose and the Kremlin wins. That's number one. Number two is there's a lot of work that can be done just on the defensive side. So whether that's closing off these vulnerabilities that we were just talking about, There's vulnerabilities that have been been created by technologies. These technologies all have tremendous upsides. But I don't think we've done enough as new technologies have sort of entered the wild to think about the downsides and really to think about those before they're let out into the wild. And we need to make sure that we are maximizing the upside of new technologies and ensuring that we are minimizing the downside. And that's just not been really a part of the conversation.
0: But that conversation is not happening in the government because it's not being accepted. So it's not happening that's forcing this conversation to be to happen in different places including this organization that you started what are you guys trying to do
1: yeah what we're trying to do is bring together experts across different Areas, So we've been bringing together people who are experts in different parts of national security to better understand this toolkit that the Russians are using. And frankly, you know, while we're talking about Russia here today, this is a toolkit that others can and will and in some cases are adopting. So we need to understand that for some, this is actually just a different kind of warfare. And we need to get on top of that. But really building that expertise to understand how this all operates, building sort of coalitions of experts and groups that might not naturally work together. So yesterday I was with a whole group of campaign finance experts thinking about how some of our campaign finance laws, as they currently are structured, allow some loopholes for potential foreign influence in the financial space. You know, it means working with um, the National Association of Secretaries of State or some of their, you know, members who run the actual election systems, but have never really thought about foreign nation state actors who might pose a threat. And, you know, I've never really understood how our election system works in any sort of functional way other than going in and voting myself. And so having those kinds of conversations across those silos and then talking with the tech companies and in very honest conversations too about, you know, here's how we think about this threat. Here's what we see, the trends being, here's how we can maybe think about these things together and the responsibilities that we all have really trying to build that coalition. I mean, the work that we're doing is bipartisan, as you know. I'm working very closely. My co-lead was Marco Rubio's foreign policy advisor. Our advisory council, which we're grateful to have you as part of, is also bipartisan and transatlantic because we believe that this kind of united front is really, really important to being able to push back on that. So, you know, again, it's this broader understanding of what is the toolkit that's being used in in a really rigorous and comprehensive way, and then developing the defensive and deterrent policy tools to be able to push back on it. And, you know, as you noted earlier, too, some of what we're doing is actually exposing these efforts as well. And I think that one of the things we saw when this playbook was used during the Cold War was that exposure has a really important impact. And it's not the only thing that you need to do. But both in terms of raising awareness and building resiliency in a population to these efforts and then decreasing their effectiveness by essentially outing them is a really important piece of it as well. So deterrence,
0: as you know, classical deterrence has two pieces. One is denying the adversary's objective, which in this case is make it more difficult right. for him to be successful in what he's trying to do here. And the other is to impose a cost on him. Mm-hmm. We haven't done that. No. At all. No. What would make sense to you?
1: So I think that we need to think creatively here. My own personal view is that when we are thinking about imposing costs, it's important to remember what we're trying to do here is make our democracies more secure. And so there are some steps that have floated out there that people might take to impose costs, That would be more in the sort of tit for tat, do the same things to them that they do to us. Bad idea. My own view is that just accelerates democratic decline, which defeats our entire purpose. Telling everybody that
0: it's okay. Yeah. Right.
1: So that kind of stuff has got to go out the window. And we've got to bear in mind what our sort of strategic goal is here. And that's our democracies. But then that means we've got to be more creative, and we have to think outside the box, and we have to be asymmetric in our own way, and we have to think about the ways that we can respond in other domains to what's happening. I think we need to think very carefully about what Putin's priorities are. Putin's priorities are himself, and part of that is his money and the oligarch structure around him and everything that has been done to build... The only real ideological system that Russia has today, which is kleptocracy, and so I think that we need to do a lot more to think about how do we actually use that, and that's not necessarily just classic sanctions. I mean, the sanctions that have been imposed, unfortunately, the Trump administration is is now sort of delinquent in actually enforcing the sanctions that Congress passed earlier this summer and that Trump signed into law. But I think we need to go beyond that. I mean, you know, the reality is that unfortunately. Just as our open information environment has created vulnerabilities, financial systems sort of on the international scene writ large, as you know from some of the work you've done on on other issues, we have some vulnerabilities in our financial system that bad actors can exploit. I think there are things that we can do on the policy side to close some of those. But I think we also should think in other ways about how can we, as you said, impose some some costs. And and some of that may actually just be straight up in the the financial space. But we need to really understand better what that landscape looks like in order to know how best to kind of target those measures.
0: Laura, you've been incredibly gracious with your time. I just wanted to ask you, if you had you know, some time with the president, and if he asked your advice about Russia meddling in our democracy, what would you tell him?
1: You know, I would tell him that at the end of the day, this is about who we are as America, and that as president of this great country, you know, I think it's so incredibly important to protect our greatest strength, and that is actually our democratic foundations. I would tell him as well that when it comes to figuring out what to do about that. He has some of the best resources available in his very own departments and agencies. And even within the White House, some of the, the folks he has there very smart on these issues. Patriots who are committed to the security of our country, you can provide him with the best advice that at the end of the day, this isn't about him. And while I, I know that the president continues to feel that, Question of Russia's interference comes down to the question of his legitimacy. The reality is that at the end of the day, he may come up for re-election and find that Russia decides to get behind somebody else. And for members of Congress as well, I think it's really important to remember that it was one side this time; it may be the other side next time. This is not about any individual and supporting any particular ideology. This is about weakening us. And
0: 2018 is around the corner, and 2020 is not right far after behind. That. Yep, we have a lot of work to do.
1: We have a lot of work to do.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Michael. Really a, a pleasure.
0: That was Laura Rosenberger. This is Intelligence Matters. I'm Michael Morell.
1: Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcast starting May 8th. Access episodes early and ad-free with 48 Hours Plus on Apple Podcasts
0: starting May 1st.